0: You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. This is the story of how one stupid tweet ruined Justine Sacco's life. It was December 20th of 2013 and she was on a flight to the Cape, uh, gosh, Cape Town, South Africa and stopped in Heathrow Airport and had a long layover and she got bored and started flipping around on Twitter and was talking about the bagel guy at the airport and any other thing that people tweet about and just before she got on the plane for 11 hours she sent this tweet into the world Going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Bad. So bad that many of you probably would be annoyed that I would even bring it into a church. That's how bad that is. Now, context matters. Some would say context is everything. Some things about this that you need to know. One, Justine Sacco is visiting family in Africa. She does not mean this at all. This is meant to be a ridiculous, over the top, nonsensical statement. It's a joke. It's deeply sarcastic and ironic. Two. She thinks that everyone who follows her on Twitter will know this. She only has about 100 followers. Most of them are her friends, family. They would know that she's on her way for this purpose. That's what she thinks will happen. So she gets on the plane for 11 hours, and her phone is off. And when she lands, it starts blowing up with text messages because she suddenly discovers that she is the number one trending topic on Twitter. That the world found out about this, and that she became international news. There are literally international film crews waiting for her at the airport because everyone is furious with Justine Sacco, and I mean everyone. An entire continent, all of South Africa, where she's going to visit her family. Her family, by the way, worked with Nelson Mandela to get rid of apartheid in South Africa. So they are deeply anti-racist people who now have this... Stain on their family name. It's a really uncomfortable situation. Uh, She's been fired from her job because, you know, she was the number one trending topic on Twitter. She's the PR director at a local marketing firm, so she probably should have thought this through. And in general, she's one of the most hated people in the world. And she would say that she learned a very valuable lesson, that context is everything. But the problem is that the world never actually learns that lesson. And so it just goes on ruining other people's lives with no sense of what's happening and a deep sense of shame. Context is everything. You and I, we live in a world that listens to one sentence and reacts the way everyone reacts and then overreacts the way everyone, and then sort of loops in on each other's reactions and gets into this kind of rage cycle. That's the world that we live in. And because we're people who care about context, we pay attention to words in James that say things like the tongue is like a fire things that you say and things that other people say if you're not careful it's like a spark that lights a very great blaze we want to be careful with the way that we speak and careful with the way that we listen uh, both to one another and even to people we disagree with and people out there in the world it would be good if the church was known as people who move slowly who care about context who are interested in grace and restoration even for people who say really stupid things context is everything. And that's going to be really important as we read our verses today. So if you want, turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we've been continuing in a series called On a Mission of Hope. And today we're on a mission of hope in whatever context uh, we are called to. That's what Peter is going to tell us. 1 Peter chapter 2 we're going to be at verse 11. I'm going to read a lot of verses. We're covering a lot of ground today, so bear with me. Um, 1 Peter 2 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of God. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only with those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit to you is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. We're going to skip to chapter 3 wives in the same way accept the authority of your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word they may be won over without a word by their wives conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives do not adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing rather let your adornment be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in God's sight It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives in your life together, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex. Since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may answer your prayers, hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you having unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were paying attention, you know that there's a good chance someone might be annoyed today, and that's okay. That's okay. That's actually something that sometimes happens when you're in church. And so I want to say a couple of things. Number one, uh, we as people, if you would say that you are a Christian, what you are saying is that you submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That that is the ultimate authority in your life. And that means that we submit to the authority of Scripture. That Jesus who leads us often leads us with use of this book. He leads us in other ways as well. But this book is really, really important to us. So we don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. That's really important. Thing two. I am a flawed, fallible, and otherwise mediocre human being (laughs) ask my wife, I prove that just about every day and I will tell you that I am unfortunately responsible for bringing some very important and sometimes difficult words into our culture and into our time and I may do so badly, if I do, I beg your pardon and I would ask that you would give me uh, the courtesy of being mad with me in person and give me a chance to apologize, I'm really willing to do that Number three, there's a decent chance that you are a flawed, fallible human being. And there's a chance that you may mishear something I say or mishear something that scripture says. And if that's the case, I would just ask that maybe you have the same spirit that Peter mentions in verse 8. Being tender-hearted and humble-minded as we deal with one another. It'd be good. Context is everything and so we're going to deal with some of these verses that may have struck you as uncomfortable and I think we'll deal with the one that probably really bothered you as I read it the one that everyone in this room is really annoyed by honor the emperor that that wasn't the one (laughs) that wasn't the thing that stuck out to you that's what we're going to talk about first we're going to get to some of the others honor the emperor now that may not sound particularly controversial because we don't have an emperor so you think that just doesn't apply to me If you read verse 13 and you read it really literally in Greek, it'll sound like something. It'll sound something like this: Uh, submit to the authority of every human creature, even the emperor as supreme. In other words, that you and I we find ourselves in this constant posture of submission to anyone and everyone we meet. That we approach the world the way Jesus approaches the world, Uh, not as leaders and dictators and people with power, but as people who serve. But that's the way that we lead in the world. And that that means that we submit even to government institutions, both civil and federal and state and national. And that actually is more controversial than you think. I can tell you that this made me very, uncom- very uncomfortable and unpopular when Barack Obama was president. Because there are a variety of Christians who really did not like Barack Obama. And so when I said things like, we pray for the president of the United States, they would say, he's not my president. And I'd say, yes, he was. And they would say... I didn't vote for him. And I'd say, that doesn't matter. We honor the President of the United States. I don't care whether you agree with him or disagree with him. He's the President of the United States. We pray for him. This made me extremely unpopular, even in times when, let's say, the Black Lives Matter movement was growing. Because at some level, we still say we respect the police, we respect police commissioners, we know it's a difficult job, we know we have to be gracious and kind and careful with what we say. Not just randomly accusing people of racism, but still at the same time talking about what it means to obey the authorities we're under and submitting to people made me very unpopular. It makes me very unpopular today because the president of the United States is Donald Trump and there are many Christians who again do not care for Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, good or bad. And I say we pray for him. And they go I don't want him. And I say but we have to. And they say he's not my president. I say yes he is. It's the way it always works. Nancy Pelosi, a couple of weeks ago the speaker of the house, who's a democrat by the way it was a news, a press conference and people were asking her questions and a reporter said something and it got under her skin and she said a lot of things some were good, some were bad, whatever but one of the things she said was I pray for the president every day now I'll tell you, this is the woman who is in charge of impeaching Donald Trump a democrat and this is the most useless sentence politically I can imagine no one in the democratic camp is glad that she prays for the president every day no one among the republicans will be impressed that she prays for the president every day And I thought, I think that's actually true. I think the person impeaching Donald Trump prays for him every day. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. Sometimes we're in this really uncomfortable position of praying for our enemies and for those who persecute us and for people we genuinely don't like and for systems that really bother us because we believe that God can slowly redeem and transform really ugly, really evil things but again this is tricky and obviously these verses can be abused but before we dive deeper into that I just want to talk about what this means in our day-to-day lives not in terms of like just big political things but how I find this annoying on a day-to-day basis that I have to follow Jesus by submitting to things that I don't want to because this means that we pay our taxes, you and me as Christians we pay our taxes, we voluntarily pay our taxes and we don't cheat on them, which is really annoying because you know other people do And we pay our taxes even on our tips, which other people do not because that's not reported income. And you can get away with not paying your taxes. And we do. And it's really, really frustrating. It's really, really frustrating at 3 in the morning when there's nobody around and you're stopped at a red light. And no one's going to see. And I could just drive through it. But I follow Jesus, so I have to wait the two and a half minutes to get home. And it's really, really frustrating when the jury duty notice comes in the mail and I realize I can't ignore it. Not only that, when I go to jury duty, I can't lie to try and get out of it. I have to stand there and answer questions honestly while the person next to me says, yeah, my job's really important. I can't miss work even for a day. What do you do? Uh, I'm an esthetician. What do you do? Oh, I, give, I paint people's nails for a living. You'd be fired if you missed one day? Yeah, totally. They'd fire me. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Okay. Do you need to be at work? No. I, you, no, I can spend my day here I can spend my day, yes, I can do that absolutely, do you think you can be fair and impartial in this case, yes yes, I can be fair and impartial in this case spend an, I spent eight hours of my day a couple of months ago in jury duty it's so reality, what it means, there's a friend of mine who's a dairy farmer, you may not know this there's an EPA regulation that says this if you spill milk, it's the same thing as spilling oil so my friend, the dairy farmer, at one point spills a truckload of milk on his own property he spilled his milk on his property and as a Christian felt compelled to report himself to the EPA who fined him as though he'd been illegally dumping chemicals and he paid the fine submit to every human authority context is everything it's really unpleasant trying to figure out what exactly this looks like in our context what it looks like in your context what does it mean What does it mean to honor authorities that may appear unjust? To bow down to institutions that drive you crazy? Remember, Peter who's talking to us, Peter who's talking to us is not talking about some great gracious Christian nation. He's talking about the Roman Empire. He's talking about Nero, that is likely the Caesar that we're describing, who either is about to or has already begun rounding up Christians, accusing them of crimes they did not commit, burning them alive, and or throwing them to lions or killing them for sport. That's people like you and me. He's saying we pray for that guy. We bow down to that guy. We submit to the authority of that guy. And the Christians who are reading this are thinking, but I bow down to Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've been given a great deal of freedom. I, I can overthrow the government. He would say, no, unfortunately we don't overthrow the government. We, we're careful with the way that we use our freedom. And yet at the same time, Christians who followed Peter would not have said we just blindly do whatever the government asks us to do. They didn't just walk outside and yell, I'm a Christian, please come kill me. They did actually, well, hide. And when they were arrested and tortured, they wouldn't give up their friends and neighbors and their pastors and where their church met on a regular basis. So it's a level to which we bow down to the authority of the state and there's a level to which we resist the authority of the state. It's tricky. Context is everything. Because these verses can obviously be abused. A couple years back the Attorney General of the United States read Romans 13 in a press conference and said this means that the President can do whatever he wants to do. And we talked about that at the time because that's an obvious abuse of Scripture and an obvious abuse of the state an attempt to manipulate the church by using its Scriptures. And it's something the Nazi church used to do. That actually the Nazi government came to the church in Germany and said this is how Christian you can be, this is how Christian the Bible can be, this is how Jewish the Bible can be. Think about that for a second. This is how Jewish Jesus can be and you're going to hang swastikas in your church and you're going to talk about Hitler in this way. And many people in the church said, okay, we'll do that. We have to honor the emperor. And other Christians said well that's insane. That just makes no sense at all. And those people gathered together and they wrote something called the Barman Declaration, which we have, and in doing it they were signing their own death warrants and they said we will absolutely honor the authorities that we're under to the degree that we are able except when it stops us from following Jesus Christ. Except when it stops us from pursuing the justice and the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Context is everything. What does it mean to fear God, love the family of believers honor the emperor, use our freedom well. The Bible unfortunately is not just a series of tweets that you can go, oh I do that, okay we have to think, God gave us brains for a reason And he expects us to use our brains for a reason. What does it look like to follow Jesus today where I am in the place where I live given that I don't have an emperor and yet I'm supposed to submit to these authorities. What does it look like if, say, you're a police officer and you're aware of the Black Lives Matter movement which we have police officers in this community and you're also aware that there are abuses in your particular department and you're aware that your department is under fire and your leadership is under fire and you want to respect a lot of people and you want solidarity with the people that you work with and yet at the same time you go, well, this... Something needs to change. I'm not really sure that I have all the answers, but I know that something needs to change. We have to be careful in what we do. can't just react to one another all the time. We have to move in really good directions. What does it look like maybe if you're somebody who works in a local public school to respect the authority of the people you're under and know that you're not allowed to talk about Jesus and also know that in a parent-teacher conference when someone's breaking down because they're having a divorce that it might be a really good time to share your faith in this moment. Dangerous though that might be, and it might actually get you fired, and technically you're ignoring what the authorities would like you to do in that moment. Tricky. Context is everything. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was really good at this. He was a flawed fellow human being really good at this. He has a day tomorrow. I love that he has a day in our country. He was a brilliant, brilliant man and he was also a Christian. Something that everyone forgets about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that it's reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that his great speeches are all really good sermons and he's always preaching from the Bible and he is always referencing the Old Testament or the words of Jesus and what he would consistently say is the oppression of the black man is the oppression of the white man that we cannot allow them to oppress us, not simply because it's bad for us, it's bad for them we have to do something about this, this is bad for them as well as. he was great at loving his enemies, great at loving his enemies, but the way that he managed to do this was to stand up to speak clearly, to use rhetoric that didn't demonize anybody and then he would get arrested, and they would march him into jail with a lot of really sweet old people and those people would stand in prison and very politely say this is wrong, and other people would say that's clearly wrong exactly the sort of stuff that Peter is talking about that we are people who do nothing wrong except believe in Jesus and we do nothing wrong except fight for the kingdom of God and when we fight for the kingdom of God we do so respectfully and graciously and gently and insistently the ancient Christians managed to inexplicably transform Rome and let me tell you if you know anything about Rome that, that could never have happened and yet somehow it happened context is everything but if we follow Jesus slowly and graciously in the words, in the words of Dr. King Uh, the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends toward justice context is everything so that brings us to a really fun sentence slaves, submit to your earthly masters in everything, not just the good ones but the bad ones, that's verse 18 that's not my favorite sentence in scripture and unfortunately if it were in a Twitter feed it would look really bad there are people we know who don't like Christianity explicitly because words like this pop up in the Bible the Bible supports and condones slavery I don't like the Bible I refuse to believe in Jesus. But it doesn't, though. It just doesn't. For one thing, context is everything. The slavery that's being described here is not like American slavery. American slavery, which you know is called chattel slavery, it was racial. Black people were slaves, white people were not. It was permanent. You were slaves for your entire life. Your children would be slaves, their children would be slaves, and so on. And... It was miserable, by and large. Maybe there was a good master here, there. By and large miserable situation for people. The ancient world did not know slavery like we knew slavery. It just didn't. For one thing it wasn't permanent. Five, maybe ten years. It wasn't racial. Everybody in the Bible is a different shade of brown. There are no white people in the Bible. It's North Africa and the Middle East. What do those people look like? Not me, right? Right? <laughs> Let's be real, all the people we consider heroes of the faith are non-white The people he's describing who are slaves are not white And the people he's describing are slave owners, not white It's just not a racial thing, that's not what slavery was in the ancient world And the third thing, and this is really strange, it wasn't always miserable Some people chose to become slaves, strange as that may sound Some people were paid as slaves, which is by definition not slavery for us and some people saw that slavery was a way of advancing in society that I could become a slave for a few years, buy myself out of slavery and then I could be a Roman senator that, would, that makes no sense to us, that's not the same kind of slavery that we know right? That a poor peasant would be scraping by for food but a slave actually could be pretty wealthy and eat really well and learn to read and write and do a lot of things because well, he's my slave and he does my taxes that's a very different kind of slavery that we're describing. So when someone says to you the Bible supports and condones slavery, you say no it didn't. No it doesn't and definitely not the kind of slavery that you're talking about. Context is everything. Now this isn't to say that it's still fun to be a slave. It's not to say there weren't terrible masters. Peter is acknowledging that there were terrible masters. But what does it mean to be people who believe in Jesus, who go into the world as people of faith who say well I want to submit to the authority above me as a slave. Now that's a really complicated, really uncomfortable question. And what Peter would tell you is that context is everything. What does that look like for you? But I can tell you that in the ancient world, Christianity spread rapidly among the slave population. Most, most people who were converts to Christianity were slaves and women. Those are the two groups of people who said there's something in the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes me a person in a way the rest of society doesn't think of me as a person. Something that gives me power over my situation even though I'm stuck in my situation that doesn't happen anywhere else. That's actually always been true in the history of the church even when there were slave owners who were Christians. Slaves who were pagans slowly and steadily became Christians not because they thought the witness of their master was so good but because they saw something in Jesus Christ that undermined the very idea of slavery. Exactly like what Peter is talking about. Uh, Slaves you've been given an example in Jesus which means actually that the slave is in the position of Jesus and the master is in the position of people who crucified Jesus. And so you might realize why the Bible was a really useful tool in the hand of abolitionists. Frederick Douglass wrote an autobiography. He was a freed slave many, many years ago. And it's called The Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass. And at the very back of the book he adds a little appendix and it's brilliant. He says this, But what I have said in respecting and against religion I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good and pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Amen. Mm. I don't think I'm going to preach nearly as well as that. That's, that's as good as it gets right there. Context is everything. We can really say that Christianity doesn't support slavery nearly as much as it supports slaves. And what we mean by that is to say that it gives a power to someone who is a slave to say, no matter what anybody says about you, you are made in the image of God. You are valuable. You are a person. And you are in fact on a mission of hope to bring hope to people who are also hopeless in your situation because they're slaves without Jesus. Spread like wildfire, both in the ancient world, the American South, the American North, all over the place. The question is, how do we deal with verses like this? What what do we do? Not because they're offensive to us, actually. The more you spend time reading them and thinking about them, the more you realize they have a context and they make sense and they work for us. But given that you and I aren't slaves, and we don't really know any slaves, even though slavery is alive and well in the world, what do we do? Well, one, we become people who are just against slavery, as Christians slowly and steadily became, the more they read their Bibles. That's really what happened. But another thing that that we become, we become people who look at our employers and our employees differently. The Old Testament will regularly say about slavery, remember you were slaves in a land called Egypt and remember what I did to the people who held you captive, treat your slaves well or I will treat you the way I treated Pharaoh. A very real threat. All the way through the Bible how do we deal with our employers and how do we deal with our employees in light of what the Bible says about slavery? Well, we don't have a great analogy in our time. Indentured servitude has kind of gone away. That'd probably be the closest to ancient slavery. But if you work for a corporation, um, if you work for a large hospital or medical complex, if you work for a school district, if you work for any really impersonal agency in the world that thinks of you more as a cog in a machine than a person, then you have some idea of what it might have felt like to be treated as a slave. And so the question is, what does it look like to be faithful where you work, given that it might not always be pleasant where you work? That's tough to say. Context is everything. I know people, I do actually know people, uh, who would say, my job discriminates against me because I'm a Christian. But if you were to ask their fellow employees, and if you were to chat to people who know them, they would say, well, they're often late to work. And when they come to work, they're they're, they're people who don't always do their job really well and uh, when people criticize them they get really defensive and really angry and they sort of push it back on them And generally they're just really immature when it comes to dealing with conflict and you know, they talk really loudly and really badly about the people who go and get drunk on the weekends at the office and so we don't like them and they are Christians but I don't know if it's because they're Christians sometimes you might just be a jerk that may actually be why people don't like you at the office and that's really unpleasant and uncomfortable to learn that maybe you're arrogant or maybe you're rude and maybe you have some character flaws you got to deal with sometimes you're working in a place and they genuinely don't like you because you're a Christian that's a real possibility or maybe it has nothing to do with your Christianity and you're under a particular administrator who just is abusive for whatever reason what does it look like to serve and be faithful in that place can you stay in that place or not should you, I don't know what's your community group saying what are some of the people in your life saying what is it feel like God is saying when you pray and when you read scripture. Have you been praying about it? Maybe it's a place where you should stay for a while and be somebody who no matter how bad your boss is, you serve more and more and more faithfully so that eventually people just see your work and it kind of corrects the situation. You become someone that people listen to and people trust and you can actually help remove really ugly people from the organization. Maybe you're working with a boss who's constantly sexually harassing you and it's time to get out and it's been time to get out you know it's time to get out and your community group thinks it's time to get out but you're still sticking around it's time to get out Peter would say that context is everything that we have been set free in Christ and there are good reasons to leave bad jobs and there are good reasons to leave bad employers what does it look like to be faithful where you are right now in society where you are when it comes to the local government where you are when it comes to your work what does that look like to be faithful context is everything. Finally, now, wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. And husbands, live faithfully with your wives. 3-1 and 3-7. 3-8. We read all the way to you tricky verses Uh, verses i would like to not deal with actually in the same sentences that i've also been dealing with these other things but the truth is peter brings them all together and he brings them all together basically to say look submission is not an evil thing you and i are postmodern people we live in a weird time that sees any and all authority as bad just using the word submit in a sentence sounds bad it sounds like i must be ready to sort of abuse power in some very significant way I don't know if marriage is an analogy or if he sees marriage alongside these other things I'm not quite sure actually on the logic of Peter and why he brings all these things together but I think Peter would say that submission is not a bad thing what we see in Jesus Christ is somebody who says your needs are more important than my needs your life is more important than my life your joy is more important than my current comfort and happiness we should be like Jesus in our marriages in the relationships we have with one another what does that look like? That's stuff to say. Again I can say in the ancient world that Peter is dealing with a particular context. If you read chapter 3 you'll realize he's talking to women who may have become Christians whose husbands have not yet become Christians. So that already is his assumption that Christianity has spread like wildfire primarily among the marginalized in society. That it won't do quite as well with those who have power because so much of Christianity is turning the world upside down and powerful people have a lot to lose whereas slaves and women in this context had everything to gain. In fact, in the ancient world, people used to make fun of Christianity as a a religion of slaves and women. And people who would respond to that would say, we absolutely are a religion of slaves and women. And by the way, anybody else who would like to come to know Jesus and who realizes they're in desperate need of Jesus. We took that insult as a badge of honor, which confused a lot of people in the ancient world. Christianity has always loved women and has always given room to women to grow and use their gifts and become particular kinds of people it's just in our particular time on the other side of the feminist movement on the other side of a lot of other things it seems like maybe the church is all about controlling women the feminist movement comes out of Christianity Christianity I don't know if you know this, they don't often teach this in schools. It it exists because a woman named Mary Willenstonecraft in the 1700s wrote a book called On the Rights of Women, and she said, look, we're all Christians here, why wouldn't you let us learn to read and write and do other things? Don't you think we could love our husbands better if you let us do that? And that slowly gives rise to something that you and I know of as the feminist movement that says things like, the church is irredeemable of the masculinity of Christ. So certain kinds of feminism the church can't get on board with, and other kinds of feminism the church is thoroughly behind that's a really tricky thing context is everything all I can tell you is that in my relationship with my wife if I ever were to tell my wife to submit that kind of laughter would be much louder <laughs> and I will tell you also that when I look at my wife I often submit to my wife which the Bible bears witness to by the way mutual submission in scripture and in order to apologize to my wife, I have to submit to her. Have to. I have to say, I'm wrong. Which means you're right. And that happens an awful lot. My wife, likewise, is wrong, often. And has to say, I'm wrong, and you're right. This is the basic nature of forgiveness and loving one another. There's a a book called Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend. They're... Um, Yeah, they're both counselors. They're really good. Some of you have read it from the that just came out. Uh, It's a great book, Boundaries, by Cloud and Townsend. Uh, But they say this, we have never seen a, quote, submission problem that did not have a controlling husband at its root. When the wife begins to set clear boundaries, the lack of Christlessness, Christ-likeness in a controlling husband becomes evident because the wife is no longer enabling his immature behavior. She's confronting the truth and setting biblical limits on hurtful behavior. Often, when the wife sets boundaries, the husband begins to grow up. Those are counselors who say this. I think that's fair. Uh, what we would say is that I should submit to my wife, and my wife should submit to me. And that that's not necessarily like the shot... Uh, what, Gosh. What's the clock in the NBA where the ball goes up? Is it the, no, not the shot clock. I'm thinking of a thing where like the jump ball... The tip-off, there's a, there's a thing that just sort of switches sides these days, right? Or do we, do we always tip-off? A possession switch. I'm just making this up now. <laughs> I've, gotten, I've gotten on a wild rabbit trail. Anyway, here's basically what we're talking about. That it's not a 50-50 thing. That I'm not right half the time and my wife is right half the time. That I don't lead half the time and my wife leads half the time. That's, that's not what we're describing. We're describing a situation in which I say to my wife, I love you and I want to submit to you and... I just I think that we might need to do this differently, but I want to love you really, really well. And the the more that I'm the kind of person who loves my wife well, the easier I am to submit to. It just sort of happens naturally. The more conscious my wife is that she's submitted to me, it's usually because there's something wrong. Either because I'm being a turd, which is a thing, or because she actually has a real problem with pride in that moment. That happens. The more I'm conscious of a conflict with my wife where it's really difficult to submit, it's because either she's being a turd or I'm being a turd in that moment. And sometimes there are just these moments where you go... I just don't think it's important that I'm right I just don't think it's important that I told you so I just don't think it's important actually that that I win in this moment men or women that ultimately men Peter says in relationships should be looking at their wives as fellow heirs of the promise people who've received something from Jesus Christ and even if everywhere else in the world is a me too kind of a moment in the church and in a marriage that follows Jesus that should never be possible Because we would look at these people as made in the image of God, as people who've been, well, created right alongside us to be remarkable people. At the same time, wives should be looking at their husbands not as potentially controlling, patriarchal, misogynist agents, which the world around you will tell you we are, that we are dangerous and that you should never give up your power to people like us. And that's fair, because often we're terrible people. And yet what the Bible would tell you to do is to learn to submit to your husband and to trust that somehow you may win him to the gospel, that you may love like Jesus loves so well that he may actually learn about Jesus from the way that you live your life. And this is true for both men and women, that we would love the way that Jesus loves so well that people might become Christians. It is a fact of history that women were so good at this, these women who came to know Jesus were so good at this, that slowly and steadily their husbands came to know Jesus, and their children came to know Jesus, and the church grew, actually because of the evangelism of women and what's strange is that verses like these are often abused and they're abused sometimes in churches which is even more confusing where people will say well the women have a particular place in the house and men have a particular place in the house And so women have a particular place in society and men have a particular place in society and the more that they talk like that the more you go that doesn't really sound actually at all like what the gospel talks about or people will occasionally use words like well women complement men and you'd say well that sort of implies that women aren't complete without men and that men aren't complete without women which really doesn't sound very much like the Bible. What we're called to do is not create new labels for ourselves and new political tribes, even within the church, talking about equality or complementarianism or any number of other things. We're called to be people who serve our wives really well or serve our husbands really well. And if verses like this are abused, it's usually because someone's not submitting really well, potentially a pastor, to a community of people. And it could be that you're in a situation that's really abusive right now, and let me just say, if you are in a situation like that, ignore these verses. Come talk to a pastor. Don't ignore them for the rest of your life. Ignore these verses. Talk to a pastor. Abuse happens in the church. You may know somebody who's connected to the church. These verses are not super helpful in abusive relationships. They'll just, the verses themselves get abused and used in weird ways. But in general, these are really good verses. They guide the way that I love my wife. They guide the way that my wife loves me. And when we read verse 8, right, the idea that we would all, I'm just going to read it one more time, really out loud to you, all of you, finally, have a unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That that would be something that guides us. If you're single, actually, that these verses which are confusing to you and don't seem to apply to you. You say, well, what does this look like for me as I get into dating relationships and as at some point I get married to a man or married to a woman, what does, what does that mean for me? What what will that look like in my context? What does that mean for me now? The great gift you have as a single person, the great gift you have, you can get ready to get married. You can be prepared. The rest of us are stuck. I can't get, I can't get ready. I'm, just, I'm building a plane while flying it all the time. And I, I, used to know, I used to know single guys who would say things like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hit the gym. And that's how I'm going to get the girl. I'm going to hit the gym and I'm going to look great. And that's going to be incredible and I would consistently say you know what you should do? Work on the person you are on the inside um, because that will last longer than the muscles Uh, and you should probably learn to cook and learn to dance and learn to deal with your anger and, and learn to deal with your roommates and resolve conflict because I guarantee you those things will come up in marriage I don't have the opportunity to learn how to do those things outside of marriage I'm very much in a marriage right now there's a real gift to singleness that these verses even, I think, can, can point us toward. To become the kind of people who can respond really well to someone that we are called to spend the rest of our lives with. Context is everything. Men or women, married or single, slave or free, government, non-government. What does it look like in our context? That's what Peter's telling us. What does it look like to follow Jesus, to be a person who moves for the kingdom of God in your context here and now? Today, in your marriage, your job, as you deal with society, context is everything. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these verses.